Good morning again, saints. What a, what a joy it is for me to be with you this morning, and I'm, I'm thankful. I mean, you know, you think about Palm Sunday, and here we are. Who would have predicted that we would be in this particular crisis and that we would all be separated? But I'm very thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And today we're going to be looking at the final week, the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's commonly called the Passion Week, and between all the Gospels, this week is covered in immense detail. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. This is the reason that He came to earth as a babe in the manger. He came to fulfill the law, suffer, and die for the sins of men. Now, Mark has been building and accelerating to this point in his gospel. Jesus has been shown to be the, the Son of Man and the Son of God who, who laid aside His glory and humbled Himself. He's been shown to be stronger and more powerful than nature or sickness, even demons. But for His disciples, he, they still had a, a limited understanding of who He was and who He is and of His purpose for coming. Now, Jesus has been trying to tell them, if they would understand, He, he actually says in, in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, that He says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, and spit on Him, and scourge Him, and kill Him, and three days later, he will rise again. And so he's been trying to tell them of what's going to happen. And even in Mark 10, he repeats it again and says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this, these events, are the, the, this purpose, excuse me, is, is what the Passion Week is really all about. It is, it is a God-ordained escalation of events to bring about the death of Jesus Christ's own Passover. John the Baptist says that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sinners of the world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that He is our Passover Lamb. And so Mark is writing his Gospel in an evangelistic sense. He desires and wants that if you do not know Jesus Christ, that you would follow Him because He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the coming One. He desires that you not be hard-hearted in your unbelief, but believe in Christ, submit to Him, and reject everything in your life that you lean on and you place your trust in, your health, your wealth your friends, your false gods, and most importantly, your pride. And you come to Him and you ask Him to save you because you cannot save yourself. Your believer, be encouraged because you can be sure that Jesus is who He says He is. Now, my wife and I used to love to walk and, and travel to a particular beach town in Southern California, Central Valley, or excuse me, Central Coast, it's called Cayucas in the Morro Bay area. And we would love to go to this little, little town. It's a beautiful place on the beach. 
And time to time we would go and we would do some shopping and we'd walk along in front of the storefronts. And I remember this lady walking up to us one time and, and she, she had this platter of samples and these samples are, were of these cookies. And she said, would you like one? I said, of course, because of course I'm not going to refuse a cookie. And I grabbed one and got one for Beth and we ate the cookies and the lady walked on and we were nibbling on these things and, and they were the best cookies I've ever had. Right? They, they, were, they were kind of a sugar cookie and had some sea salt mixed in, and, and they're kind of a, a sweet and salty taste to them. Now, I know Aussies don't really do the sweet and salty, but they were delicious. And so Beth and I looked at each other, and we were like, we've got to get some more of these. And so we, we found out where the shop was in the town, and we went to it, and we got some more of these, these cookies, and they were just delicious. But the great thing about these cookies is, is that that preview, that, that sample tasting that I received just gave me the desire for so much more. We're going to be looking at a passage this morning that's commonly called the triumphal entry of Jesus. But in reality, it's a preview of the triumphal entry. And that's what I've titled my, my message this morning, uh, the preview of the triumphal entry of Christ. Because the real triumphal entry, as recorded in Scripture, is in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. At this time, Jesus' return, he, we return, excuse me, as Lord, and He will rule the earth at that point. But what we have in Mark is a preview of that event. And today we're going to be looking at three points. We're going to look at Jesus Christ and the fact that His Word is sure, His plans are sure, and His judgment is sure. Now, just to kind of bring you up to speed, because it's always dangerous just to jump into the middle of a book, jump into the middle of context without any context. Now, following Jesus's ministry, Jesus's ministry is complete. His ministry in Galilee, in Judea, and even Perea across the Jordan is complete. It's done. He crosses over the Jordan at or near Jericho, and he makes his way up towards Jerusalem. In Mark 10, he passes through Jerusalem. That's where he heals Bartimaeus, a man who's born blind. And that's where he meets Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the tax collector. And they both are saved spiritually. He then leaves Jericho and he makes the, the 2,500 foot climb, 760 meter climb on a 20 on a mile, 32 kilo journey, kilometer journey up towards Bethany on the way to Jerusalem. And this is Saturday, the Sabbath, as he's traveling. And remember, there's a large crowd of people that are following him. They've seen these miracles. They've seen Bartimaeus. They've heard of Lazarus. And the crowd is growing, especially as, as the Jews themselves, the pilgrims, are, are making their way towards Jerusalem for the Passover. John 12 says they arrive in Bethany six days before the Passover, which is on Friday. And they arrive on the Saturday now, Jesus comes to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in John 12, that's where Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And that's where you have Judas grumbling, and we get to see his heart. Well, just remember during this time that the messianic fever was, was just going straight out. It was, it was culminating. It was, it was reaching a, a peak, a culmination. People are, are hearing about Lazarus. In fact, Luke 19.11 says that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So as we drop into this, set, this setting of Mark chapter 11, the messianic expectation was reaching that fever pitch. 
People were, were expecting Jesus to, to declare himself the Messiah. And in their view, it was a political Messiah. And that's one of the reasons Jesus actually tells and reminds the disciples of his plan, of his purpose. In Mark 10, as we, we read before, saying that he's going he's to go to Jerusalem and die. He's going to be a ransom for many. Well, it's interesting that as more and more pilgrims were, were pouring into Jerusalem, most scholars say, most scholars estimate that Jerusalem could have swelled to over 2.5 million people. We have records of the number of sacrifices in the, in the 40s, and those sacrifices number in the 250,000 range. And if you, if you had one sacrifice per family, you can do the math from there and see that it was quite a lot of people. And you would have had thousands and hundreds of thousands of people streaming into Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas, swelling the population of that city. Well, news of Lazarus' resurrection was spreading. In fact, it was spreading to the extent that the, the Pharisees and the priests showing their hard-heartedness in John 12, they were even thinking of putting Lazarus to death rather than dealing with the resurrection miracle itself. Just silence the news or silence the person that is evidence to the miracle of Jesus. So John 12 continues and says that a, a large number of people have come from the city, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem, to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. Now, when it says a large number of people, you probably would have talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of people making that short trek from Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus and to see Lazarus and hear about this great miracle and, and, and talk to the person who did the miracle. All these pilgrims from, from different parts of Israel and even the surrounding lands. But John 12 says that the next day, John 12, 12, Jesus left Bethany and headed toward Jerusalem. This would have been Palm Monday. Now, I know all of you are saying, wait a second, wait a second, Palm Sunday. What about church tradition? And I think there's two issues for those that hold that chronology of the Palm Sunday that they, they have to deal with. And one of them is, is the last week of Jesus recorded in, in immense detail in the Gospels. What we have, if you follow the Sunday chronology, is that we have Wednesday is a day that Jesus goes silent. And there's nothing recorded that Jesus says on Wednesday. And now on this, this wonderful week and then this, this culmination of His ministry, why is nothing recorded on Wednesday? But if you hold, if you follow the chronology where Jesus entered Jerusalem on the Monday, it answers that question. Because the Passover was Friday when Jesus was crucified. One other issue, and I think that for me this is the, the main point, is that according to the Mosaic Covenant, the Passover was always in the first month, month of Nisan, and it's on the 14th day. Well, on the 10th, the 10th of Nisan, four days before, was the day they chose their Passover lambs and they presented those lambs at the temple. Now, Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And what a great picture and a great fulfillment of that Old Testament law is that the Passover lamb himself was selected and presented in the temple on the Monday, and Jesus went to Jerusalem and he presented himself at the temple. And so for me, I hold to the, the Passover, excuse me, the, the, 
the Palm Monday chronology because I think that makes a lot more sense. Now, if you disagree with me, we, we won't break fellowship for sure. But I just want you to know that I think this, this chronology just, just gives us such a, a greater picture of, of how God orchestrates even those small events so that He is glorified and His Word is fulfilled. And so let's look down at the text and let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has yet ever set. And untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? And you say, The, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing in tying this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So the first thing that I want you to see this morning, brethren, is that Jesus' word, his word is sure. Now, one thing about Jesus' interest to Jerusalem is that Jesus uh, this is a miracle in itself, okay? So it was a miracle in that Jesus sends two of his disciples, and we often overlook this. He sends two of his disciples, and one of them was probably Peter, by the way, because there's a great detail, great amount of detail in Mark, and Mark based his gospel on his recollections of his conversations with Peter. So Peter's one of them, and probably another one, we don't know who. And so they, they go through, and they go into the city, and they find everything just as Jesus has said. So Jesus demonstrates His divine omniscience, even over little details, such as you find a, a, a young donkey, a colt, tied up in a certain place, and if someone asks you, you even have the words to say. See, Jesus knew what was going to happen, and He, and he knew that this was a colt that He could use for the advancement of the kingdom, for use in His ministry. You know, I love the age my kids are at right now. And we, we moved here not too long ago. My, my kids and I, we went to uh, the Kite Festival in Singapore with some of the church members, and we had a great time. And I remember as we got out of the car, you could start seeing the kites in the background. And we got closer, and we walked on the jetty, or pier for those of you in the United States. We walked on the jetty, and we see all these kites. And there's massive ones tied to cars and little ones flying around. My kids are like, ooh, and ah. And I mean, even I was saying ooh and ah. It was, it was a, great, a great time. Well, my son looks at me and he goes, he goes, Dada, you know, how did you know? Or did you know all these, these kites were here? And I just look at him and I go, because I'm Dada. Now, I can get away with that right now. Eventually, my son's going to like, wait a second. Yeah, there's got to be more to that. Well, you know, contrary to popular belief, I'm not God, and I don't play Him on TV, but Jesus is. And the disciples obeyed, 
and they were able to see a small glimpse of Jesus' deity, of His omniscience. You know, they could trust His words. They could trust these words here that when Jesus said, go do this and find this, you will see it exactly as He said. Now, disciples had seen more miracles, even greater than this. They had seen Jesus calm the seas and heal the, heal the lame and the blind. Right? They had seen nature obey His command, demons being cast out. You see, Jesus' Word can be trusted. And we have Jesus' words here as our Bibles. Right? His words directly are recorded in the Scriptures, recorded in the Gospels. The, the rest of the New Testament testifies to who He is and what He's done. It testifies to the truth. We can, we can know how to please Him. We can know who He is through the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Me. You see, Jesus had done all these things leading up to this event, but yet, not everyone believed. The crowds were fickle. Their faith was superficial. And even the disciples themselves, their faith was superficial. At the first sign of trouble, they deserted Him. Peter denied Him. Brethren, I, I pray that your faith in Jesus Christ will be more than superficial. That you would believe He is who He says He is. And you believe that He died on a cross for your sins. That's who He is. He is who He claims to be. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. So not only do we have a miracle in the sense of, a, of Jesus and showing His omniscience, but we also have a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus actually filled Zechariah 9.9. Right? This is quoted in, in another gospel, but literally Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus, nothing escapes His notice. He is fulfilling an ancient prophecy about the Messiah. And the crowds, by the way, they would have gotten that. The fact that He got on this, this donkey and, and was going toward Jerusalem, because Messianic fever was, was just so high, they would have clearly understood that messianic reference of Zechariah 9.9, and the crowds would have gotten even more excited. But see, what the Jewish people didn't understand is that as He is the Messiah, yet it was necessary for the Messiah to become the suffering servant in Isaiah first. He had to fulfill that prophecy as well. Yes, He was the, mess, the Messiah, and he, he, this was a Messianic prophecy, but it was not in the way that they hoped and believed. Brethren, you can believe, and your faith should rest on the fact that God's Word can be trusted. How cool is it that, that Jesus orchestrated these events, that he, he demonstrated His omniscience, but He also fulfilled ancient prophecy at the same time. It wasn't just, I'm going to ride a colt or a, a young donkey. I'm going to fulfill Isaiah 9. So we know that His Word is sure, and you can trust it. We also know that His, his plans are sure. Because if you look at the people now, remember the, the, the Messianic fever, 
right? The, the, the fever of, of everybody's expectations is just rising and culminating, and, and the crowd surrounding Jesus would have numbered in the, in the thousands. You see those videos of Jesus' Jesus's entry, you know, those different movies, and they show, you know, tens and tens of people or maybe hundreds. You're talking about thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand. Imagine the, the shouting. And what do they do? First of all, before they shout, they, they throw their cloaks on the ground. And that's a sign of a way of welcoming a coming king. It was a common practice in that time. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu is made king and, and they, his companions, they throw their cloaks on the ground in a, in, a, in a sign of welcoming him as a kingship, but also a sign of submission to his authority. And then they grab, and Marcus says, leafy branches. Well, we know that those branches are palm branches because we have a little more detail in John. So they grab palm branches, just things that they could grab, and they're throwing it on the ground. It's, it's like they're laying out the red carpet, as we would say, because here comes the Messiah. But not only do they, they throw their cloaks and the palm branches, but I want you to listen and, and look at chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 9, where, where it's just what they say. They say, Hosanna! And that's in the imperfect tense, so it's repeated. And you can almost imagine, and as, as Mark records, there's people in the front, and there's people in the back, and you can hear, Hosanna! 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 People are, are praising Christ. It's repeatedly. John said it begins as they, as they crest the Mount of Olives, because as you leave Bethany and you go past Bethphage, you, you kind of go up a little bit of the, the Mount of Olives with the road, and, and as they crested to the top of the hill, that's when the praise started, because that's when Jerusalem came into view, and it was spread out before everyone. And we know that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on the eastern side. And so all of this is just, people were remembering, hey, the Messiah is supposed to enter, enter in from the Mount of Olives, and he's supposed to come down in the eastern side of Jerusalem, and, and here's Jesus on a cold, a clear Messianic reference. You can just feel the excitement, the tension in the air. And then they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. It's one of the Hallel Psalms. All the Hallel Psalms are sung during the Passover. In fact, Psalm 118 would have been the last psalm that you would sing if you were doing the Passover. And then the, the, the Passover itself will be complete. So most likely, this is the psalm that Jesus and His disciples sung right before they left to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But here the crowds are, are praising God. It's a, it's a clear Messianic reference. Blessed is the, is the coming King, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Or you could even say it, blessing is the, blessed is the coming one. And now the coming one was a clear Messianic title. Hebrews 10.37 and John 11.27. Matthew 11.3, they all speak of the coming one. In fact, Maranatha could actually be taken as a statement or a prayer. You could say, Jesus is our coming one, or O Lord Jesus, come. And we say Maranatha. It's a clear messianic reference. So just, just picture this in your mind. The people are shouting thousands, right? And then they say something else. They say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. 
Hosanna in the highest. It's a, it's a Davidic covenant reference where God promised David that he would always have someone on the Davidic throne, that one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, would rule the people and he would have an eternal throne that would last forever. We know that Jesus is the son of David. In fact, you could even say that the praise for Jesus began with Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Verse 47, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Here you have a blind man seeing what others cannot. In Luke, he weeps over the city. And then the Pharisees, it actually says in Luke 19 that the Pharisees tried to silence the crowd. And then he turned to Jesus and they said, make them stop. Jesus says, well, if they don't shout, the stones will and refuse to stop them. But it's also in John 12, the Pharisees were in despair and confusion. The whole world is going after him. They didn't know what to do. But what I love about this particular passage is that the messianic fever excuse me, doesn't deter Jesus. This public declaration of Jesus as Messiah by all these thousands and thousands, Jesus doesn't refute it because refute it it's true, but he didn't view this as his triumphal entry. Psalm 118 verse 22 says that, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief stone. You see, Jesus knew that He had to die first. He wasn't going to be deterred by the nation clamoring for a political Messiah to deliver them from the hands of the Romans. You see, the time of blessing could not come until the Lamb of God had made proper atonement for sins. You see, the Jews wanted the, the glory of the Messiah's rule without His sacrifice. And Jesus would not give them His blessing and the blessing that they sought. They wanted Him to rule from Jerusalem and, and subjugate the Romans and, and uh, get rid of the, the corrupt priesthood and establish Israel as the world power. But Jesus stayed true to His purpose. And His purpose is that He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, all of this, by the way, happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's sermon after the resurrection. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, of, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So this was the predetermined plan of God. God was not surprised. In fact, God orchestrated these events to accelerate this so that Jesus Christ would die on the Passover. 
Matthew 26 says that the, the Jews themselves, the leaders, they actually didn't want to kill Jesus originally at the Passover because they, they feared the people. But then Judas comes to them and gives them an opportunity they can't refuse and they can't overlook. But one thing that you can see, and you can see Jesus' plans are sure, because with all of this excitement, and the people shouting and, and, and marching into Jerusalem, you would expect what? You'd expect, if you're, if you're just a, a person, a man looking at this event, you'd expect Jesus to just to keep going and, and to make His way through the city and maybe wake his, make His way over to the Roman fortress and send His, his guys in to take care of it and march on up to, to the palace or, or march into the temple with this crowd. That's what you're expecting. That's what the, the crowds are expecting. But Mark makes it very clear. He can't be more anticlimactic. Look at verse 11. And Jesus entered the temple, or excuse me, He entered Jerusalem and He came into the temple, and after looking around everything, He left. Right? Jesus got down off the donkey, and He left. Right? You, you almost can feel that, that what? That bubble burst. We've been building and building, and then... Oh, right? He didn't give the Jews what they wanted. It's like on a sailing ship, right? You're sailing along, the wind's blowing, and you, you, you turn the ship without adjusting the sail, and what happens? We have an expression, it lets the wind out of the sail, right? All momentum is gone. <sighs> because Jesus didn't come to be their political Messiah. That's why I call this the, the preview of the triumphal entry. You know, our Lord was not deterred by their fickle praise and even deterred by the, the numbers of the crowds around Him. And praise God that He wasn't distracted or tempted to give in to the multitudes, clamoring for Him to, to bring in the Messianic kingdom. Brethren, trust in Jesus because His plans are sure. Right? He followed through and He made Himself a sacrifice for sin, your sin. His plans for you are sure as well. And you can trust in Him. He who began a good work in you is going to see it to completion. Philippians 1. Romans 8, 28-30 talks about all God works all things for our good. And that good is our sanctification. The fact that God wants things to work for our, uh, to, so that we would be like Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we all will stand in God's presence with glorified bodies, able to endure His holiness and His power for all eternity. You know, I'd love to read, and I will, Revelation chapter 19, because I want to give you a picture before we move on of the real triumphal entry. In verse 11 of chapter 19, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are like the flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe 
and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the triumphal entry. So we can trust that his word is sure, his plans are sure, and you can trust that his judgment is sure. Look, remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he looks in the temple and he takes it all in. And then he leaves. Well, what is he looking at? Well, he's looking at, look down at verse 15 of Mark chapter 11. He said that he came into Jerusalem, this is the next day, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And they overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. You see how those, all these vendors set up and they were selling animals for sacrifice. Basically, they had turned the outer temple into a, a Mediterranean bazaar. And if any of you have ever seen movies or ever been to the to Mediterranean, you've been to one of these bazaars, you know they're, they're dirty and loud places. People crying out, come, come over here, come see my wares. And to make matters worse, the people had to pay their temple tax in a shekel, in the, in the Hebrew coinage. They weren't allowed to pay that tax with their, their Greek and Roman coins that had idols on them. And so they came in to exchange that, that, that foreign money and they were being ripped off. The, the money changers were charging 10, 20, 30% to exchange that money. That's why Jesus calls it a, a den of thieves. And guess what? The, the priest. Right? The, the Sadducees, they, they, they got a cut. This was a this is part of their way of making money. They got a cut from the, the animal sacrifices and selling those. They, they got a cut from this money exchanging. In fact, even the high priesthood itself was bought and sold. The family of Annas and Caiaphas, excuse me, had, had bought the priesthood. That's why John actually says, he makes a kind of a, a snide comment when it when it says that. Caiaphas was priest that year because they rotated. There's supposed to be one high priest. He was supposed to be of the line of Aaron. So Jesus' judgment, he takes all that in. And he returns the next day. And he and he cleanses the temple. And he exposes their corruption. He, he challenges their authority. He exposes their hypocrisy and their lack of love for their fellow brethren. He challenges their religious system that lacked any true faith in God. All it was was religious exercise. Matthew 26, it's interesting that the disciples are pointing out the temple complex to Jesus. And you kind of think about that. Here they are pointing out the temple of God to God. Kind of give you a chuckle. But here they're pointing out the temple buildings. And Jesus looks at the buildings and He said, not one stone remain on top of another. And that's exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the, the Romans come in and they destroyed Jerusalem. And as the, the fires raged, the gold of the temple melted and the, the Roman soldiers in a rush to get to the gold just ripped apart the temple complex after the gold and silver. You think about jewelers and how if you've ever gotten gotten engaged and you go to a jeweler and you want a great diamond and you know jeweler looks over fine metal or a fine stone and he looks over it carefully right he's looking at it and he he has a keen eye and he knows what something is junk and he knows what something is truly valuable 
Well, Jesus goes into the temple and He looks around and he, He evaluates what is going on. And He's offended. And He has righteous indignation. He sees their unbelief. He sees their, 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 their thieving of the people and the mistreatment and their hypocrisy. And you can even see that in chapter 13. And as, a, as he was hungry and he sees a fig tree in leaf, he curses it. And it's a parable. It's a picture. Because when a fig tree leaves, there usually is a large number of figs underneath it. But he goes to this fig tree and it, and it looks like it's, it's going to be so fruitful and there's nothing there. It's a picture of what, of what the temple of the Jews looked like. It was a beautiful building. And you would think there would be the worship of Almighty God within it, but there was no faith found. See, Jesus' evaluation is inescapable. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you will face His wrath. You will face His judgment because of your sin and God's holiness. Brethren, it for those of you that are believers, there is also an evaluation for us. Now, we don't have to fear for our salvation, but every believer will stand before the, the Bema judgment seat of Christ. You will have your life evaluated for your motives and your actions. Were you being faithful? And were you a faithful servant? It's a place of rewards and loss. There will be an evaluation Brethren, when it, when it comes to Jesus, He is who He says He is. He's the Lord, He's the Son of God, and He is the Messiah. Our faith is in Him. There is no other name, no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. You see, faith is understanding your, your sinful state, your unholy state, and how you're, you're separated from God by your own personal sin. You confess that sin. You, you humble yourself. You repent. And you believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross for you paid the price that you deserve. In other words, God's wrath was poured upon Him instead of you. It's believing in Christ, who He is and what He's done. Christ sacrificed is the, by, is the means of salvation. Today we've seen a, a preview of the triumphal entry. We've seen misdirected faith. People are following Jesus for, for what they can get out of it. Of self-centered following of Jesus. Like, like Judas and the crowd. Brethren, we... We can have that today as well. There are people that join churches and they, they join churches for, for social standing or business gain or political gain. But what Jesus really desires is humility, repentance, and obedient submission to His will. we also seen a, a superficial faith. The crowds, the same crowds that are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and blessed is he who is coming in the, the name of the Lord, those same crowds. After a week of Jesus not giving them what they want, the same crowds that shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. True faith is a persevering faith. 
It's a willingness to stay faithful in the midst of difficult times, no matter the cost. Brethren, we're in difficult times. Your faith is being tested. Turn to Jesus Christ and remember who He is. Right? We've seen Jesus' words are sure. His plan is sure. His judgment is sure. And today we've seen a preview of the triumphal entry. Let us pray now for the real triumphal entry, the second return of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that He will take the throne that He rightly deserves. Maranatha. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we acknowledge that You are the Son of God. We acknowledge that You are the Messiah. We acknowledge that You alone are our salvation. And we acknowledge that through Your work on the cross, You have been given a name that which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess as Lord. Father, I pray that as we we think about this week, as we begin the study and and talk and think about the the last week of Your life, O Lord, that we remember that You came to be a ransom for sin. That You came to reconcile us to the Father. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for faith. I pray, Lord, that as we live out our lives, Lord, during this time of crisis, that our faith would be demonstrated. That we would not have a superficial faith or misdirected faith, but our faith would persevere. And that we would trust that you are who you say you are and that you are and that you do have our best interest at heart. Father, we thank you again for this time. We just glorify and honor you, our Lord. Amen.